One day he remarked, without lifting his head, "'In the interior you will no doubt meet Mr. Kurtz.' On my asking who Mr. Kurtz was, he said he was a first-class agent, and seeing my disappointment at this information, he added slowly, laying down his pen, "'He is a very remarkable person.' Further questions elicited from him that Mr. Kurtz was at present in charge of a trading post, a very important one, in the true ivory country, at the very bottom of there, sends in as much ivory as all the others put together. He began to write again. The sick man was too ill to groan. The flies buzzed in a great peace. Suddenly there was a growing murmur of voices and a great tramping of feet. A caravan had come in. A violent babble of uncouth sounds burst out on the other side of the planks. All the carriers were speaking together, and in the midst of the uproar, the lamentable voice of the chief agent was heard giving it up, tearfully, for the twentieth time that day. He rose slowly. What a frightful row, he said. He crossed the room gently to look at the sick man, and returning, said to me, He does not hear. What? Dead? I asked, startled. No, not yet he answered, with great composure, then alluding with a toss of the head to the tumult in the station-yard, when one has got to make correct entries, one comes to hate those savages, hate them to the death. He remained thoughtful for a moment. When you see Mr. Kurtz, he went on, tell him from me that everything here, he glanced at the desk, is very satisfactory. I don't like to write him. With those messengers of ours, you never know who may get hold of your letter at that central station. He stared at me for a moment, with his mild, bulging eyes. Oh, he will go far, very far, he began again. He will be a somebody in the administration before long. They above the council in Europe, you know, mean him to be. He turned to his work. The noise outside had ceased, and presently, in going out, I stopped at the door. In the steady buzz of flies, the homeward-bound agent was lying flushed and insensible. The other, bent over his books, was making correct entries, of perfectly correct transactions. And fifty feet below the doorstep, I could see the still treetops of the Grove of Death. Next day I left that station at last, with a caravan of sixty men for a two-hundred-mile tramp. No use telling you much about that. Paths, paths everywhere, a stamped-in network of paths, spreading over the empty land, through the long grass, through burnt grass, through thickets, down and up chilly ravines, up and down stony hills ablaze with heat, and a solitude, a solitude, nobody, not a hut. The population had cleared out a long time ago. Well, if a lot of mysterious niggers armed with all kinds of fearful weapons suddenly took to traveling on the road between Deal and Gravesend, catching the yokels right and left to carry heavy loads for them, I fancy every farm and cottage thereabouts would get empty very soon. Only here, the dwellings were gone too. Still, I passed through several abandoned villages. There's something pathetically childish in the ruins of grass walls. Day after day, with the stamp and shuffle of sixty pair of bare feet behind me, each pair under a sixty-pound load, camp, cook, 
sleep, strike camp, march. Now and then a carrier dead in harness, at rest in the long grass near the path, with an empty water gourd and his long staff lying by his side, a great silence around and above. Perhaps on some quiet night, the tremor of far-off drums, sinking, swelling, a tremor vast, faint, a sound weird, appealing, suggestive and wild, and perhaps with as profound a meaning as the sound of bells in a Christian country. Once a white man in an unbuttoned uniform, camping on the path with an armed escort of lank Zanzibaris, very hospitable and festive, not to say drunk, was looking after the upkeep of the road, he declared. Can't say I saw any road, or any upkeep, unless the body of a middle-aged negro with a bullet hole in the forehead, upon which I absolutely stumbled three miles farther on, may be considered as a permanent improvement. I had a white companion, too. Not a bad chap, but rather too fleshy, and with the exasperating habit of fainting on the hot hillsides, miles away from the least bit of shade and water. Annoying, you know, to hold your own coat like a parasol over a man's head while he's coming, too. I couldn't help asking him once what he meant by coming there at all. To make money, of course. What do you think? He said scornfully. Then he got a fever and had to be carried in a hammock slung under a pole. As he weighed sixteen stone, I had no end of rows with the carriers. They jibbed, ran away, sneaked off with their loads in the night. Quite a mutiny. So, one evening, I made a speech in English, with gestures, not one of which was lost to the sixty pair of eyes before me. And the next morning, I started the hammock off in front all right. An hour afterwards, I came upon the whole concern wrecked in a bush. Man, hammock, groans, blankets, horrors. The heavy pole had skinned his poor nose. He was very anxious for me to kill somebody. But there wasn't a shadow of a carrier near. I remembered the old doctor. It would be interesting for science to watch the mental changes of individuals on the spot. I felt I was becoming scientifically interesting. However, all that is to no purpose. On the fifteenth day, I came in sight of the big river again, and hobbled into the central station. It was on a backwater, surrounded by scrub and forest, with a pretty border of smelly mud on one side, and on the three others, enclosed by a crazy fence of rushes. A neglected gap was all the gate it had, and the first glance at the place was enough to let you see the flabby devil was running that show. White men with long staves in their hands appeared languidly from amongst the buildings, strolling up to take a look at me, and then retired out of sight somewhere. One of them, a stout, excitable chap with black mustaches, informed me with great volubility and many digressions, as soon as I told him who I was, that my steamer was at the bottom of the river. I was thunderstruck. What? How? Why? Oh, it was all right. The manager himself was there. All quite correct. Everybody had behaved splendidly, splendidly. You must, he said in agitation, go and see the general manager at once. He is waiting. I did not see the real significance of that wreck at once. I fancy I see it now, but I'm not sure, not at all. Certainly the affair was too stupid, when I think of it, to be altogether natural. 
still. But at the moment it presented itself simply as a confounded nuisance. The steamer was sunk. They had started two days before in a sudden hurry up the river, with the manager on board, in charge of some volunteer skipper, and before they had been out three hours they tore the bottom out of her on stones, and she sank near the south bank. I asked myself, what was I to do there? Now my boat was lost. As a matter of fact, I had plenty to do in fishing my command out of the river. I had to set about it the very next day. That, and the repairs when I brought the pieces to the station, took some months. My first interview with the manager was curious. He did not ask me to sit down after my twenty-mile walk that morning. He was commonplace in complexion, in features, in manners, and in voice. He was of middle size and of ordinary build. His eyes, of the usual blue, were perhaps remarkably cold, and he certainly could make his glance fall on one as trenchant and as heavy as an axe. But even at these times, the rest of his person seemed to disclaim the intention. Otherwise, there was only an indefinable, faint expression of his lips, something stealthy, a smile, not a smile. I remember it, but I can't explain. It was unconscious, this smile was, though just after he had said something, it got intensified for an instant. It came at the end of his speeches like a seal applied to the words, to make the meaning of the commonest phrase appear absolutely inscrutable. He was a common trader, from his youth up employed in these parts, nothing more. He was obeyed, yet he inspired neither love nor fear, nor even respect. He inspired uneasiness. That was it. Uneasiness. Not a definite mistrust, just uneasiness. Nothing more. You have no idea how effective such a, a faculty can be. He had no genius for organizing, for initiative, or for order even. That was evident in such things as the deplorable state of the station. He had no learning and no intelligence. His position had come to him. Why? Perhaps because he was never ill. He had served three terms of three years out there because triumphant health in the general route of constitutions is a kind of power in itself. When he went home on leave, he rioted on a large scale, pompously, jack ashore, with a difference, in externals only. This one could gather from his casual talk. He originated nothing. He could keep the routine going. That's all. But he was great. He was great by this little thing, that it was impossible to tell what could control such a man. He never gave that secret away. Perhaps there was nothing within him. Such a suspicion made one pause, for out there, there were no external checks. Once, when various tropical diseases had laid low almost every agent in the station, he was heard to say, Men who come out here should have no entrails. He sealed the utterance with that smile of his, as though it had been a door opening into a darkness he had in his keeping. You fancied you had seen things, but the seal was on. When annoyed at mealtimes by the constant quarrels of the white men about precedence, he ordered an immense round table to be made, for which a special house had to be built. This was the station's mess-room. Where he sat was the first place. The rest were nowhere.
one felt this to be his unalterable conviction. He was neither civil nor uncivil. He was quiet. He allowed his boy, an overfed young negro from the coast, to treat the white men under his very eyes with provoking insolence. He began to speak as soon as he saw me. I had been very long on the road. He could not wait. He had to start without me. The upriver stations had to be relieved. There had been so many delays already that he did not know who was dead and who was alive and how they got on, and so on and so on. He paid no attention to my explanations, and playing with a stick of sealing wax, repeated several times that the situation was very grave, very grave. There were rumors that a very important station was in jeopardy, and its chief, Mr. Kurtz, was ill. Hoped it was not true. Mr. Kurtz was... I felt weary and irritable. Hang Kurtz, I thought. I interrupted him by saying I had heard of Mr. Kurtz on the coast. Ah, so they talk about him down there, he murmured to himself. Then he began again, assuring me Mr. Kurtz was the best agent he had, an exceptional man, of the greatest importance to the company. Therefore I could understand his anxiety. He was, he said, very, very uneasy. Certainly he fidgeted on his chair a good deal, exclaimed, Ah, Mr. Kurtz, broke the stick of sealing wax and seemed dumbfounded by the accident. Next thing he wanted to know, how long it would take to... I interrupted him again, being hungry, you know, and kept on my feet, too. I was getting savage. How can I tell, I said. I haven't even seen the wreck yet. Some months, no doubt. All this talk seemed to me so futile. Some months, he said. Well, let us say three months before we can make a start. Yes, that ought to do the affair. I flung out of his hut. He lived all alone in a clay hut with a sort of veranda, muttering to myself my opinion of him. He was a chattering idiot. Afterwards, I took it back, when it was borne in upon me, startlingly, with what extreme nicety he had estimated the time requisite for the affair. I went to work the next day, turning, so to speak, my back on that station. In that way only, it seemed to me, I could keep my hold on the redeeming facts of life. Still, one must look about sometimes, and then I saw this station, these men strolling aimlessly about in the sunshine of the yard. I asked myself sometimes what it all meant. They wandered here and there with their absurd long staves in their hands, like a lot of faithless pilgrims, bewitched inside a rotten fence. The word ivory rang in the air, was whispered, was sighed. You would think they were praying to it. A taint of imbecile rapacity blew through it all, like a whiff from some corpse. By Jove, I've never seen anything so unreal in my life. And outside, the silent wilderness surrounding this cleared speck on the earth struck me as something great and invincible, like evil or truth, waiting patiently for the passing away of this fantastic invasion. Oh, these months. Well, never mind. Various things happened. One evening, a grass shed, full of calico, cotton prints, beads, and I don't know what else, burst into a blaze so suddenly that you would have thought the earth had opened to let an avenging fire consume all that trash. I was smoking my pipe quietly by my dismantled steamer, 
and saw them all cutting capers in the light with their arms lifted high, when the stout man with the mustaches came tearing down to the river a tin pail in his hand, assured me that everybody was behaving splendidly, splendidly, dipped about a quart of water, and tore back again. I noticed there was a hole in the bottom of his pail. I strolled up. There was no hurry. You see, the thing had gone off like a box of matches. It had been hopeless from the very first. The flame had leaped high, driven everybody back, lighted up everything, and collapsed. The shed was already a heap of embers glowing fiercely. A nigger was being beaten nearby. They said he had caused the fire in some way. Be that as it may, he was screeching most horribly. I saw him later, for several days, sitting in a bit of shade, looking very sick, and trying to recover himself. Afterwards, he arose and went out, and the wilderness, without a sound, took him into its bosom again. As I approached the glow from the dark, I found myself at the back of two men, talking. I heard the name of Kurtz pronounced, then the words, Take advantage of this unfortunate accident. One of the men was the manager. I wished him good evening. Did you ever see anything like it, eh? It is incredible, he said, and walked off. The other man remained. He was a first-class agent, young, gentlemanly, a bit reserved, with a forked little beard and a hooked nose. He was standoffish with the other agents, and they, on their side, said he was the manager's spy upon them. As to me, I had hardly ever spoken to him before. We got in to talk, and by and by we strolled away from the hissing ruins. Then he asked me to his room which was in the main building of the station. He struck a match, and I perceived that this young aristocrat had not only a silver-mounted dressing case, but also a whole candle all to himself. Just at that time, the manager was the only man supposed to have any right to candles. Native mats covered the clay walls. A collection of spears, assegais, shields, knives, was hung up in trophies. The business entrusted to this fellow was the making of bricks, so I had been informed. But there wasn't a fragment of brick anywhere in the station, and he had been there more than a year, waiting. It seems he could not make any bricks without something, I don't know what, straw maybe. Anyway, it could not be found there, and as it was not likely to be sent from Europe, it did not appear clear to me what he was waiting for. An act of special creation, perhaps? However, they were all waiting, all the sixteen or twenty pilgrims of them, for something. And upon my word, it did not seem an uncongenial occupation from the way they took at it, though the only thing that ever came to them was disease, as far as I could see. They beguiled the time by backbiting and intriguing against each other in a foolish kind of way. There was an air of plotting about the station, but nothing came of it, of course. It was as unreal as everything else, as the philanthropic pretense of the whole concern, as their talk, as their government, as their show of work. The only real feeling was a desire to get appointed to a trading post where ivory was to be had, so that they could earn percentages. They intrigued and slandered and hated each other only on that account. But as to effectually lifting a little finger, oh no.
By heavens, there is something after all in the world allowing one man to steal a horse while another must not look at a halter. Steal a horse straight out. Very well. He has done it. Perhaps he can ride. But there is a way of looking at a halter that would provoke the most charitable of saints into a kick. I had no idea why he wanted to be sociable. But as we chatted in there, it suddenly occurred to me that the fellow was trying to get at something. In fact, pumping me. He alluded constantly to Europe, to the people I was supposed to know there, putting leading questions as to my acquaintances in the sepulchral city, and so on. His little eyes glittered like mica discs, with curiosity, though he tried to keep up a bit of superciliousness.